You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 24th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. I changed the podcast I had originally intended for today to address the racial unrest that has enveloped our country and the world. I hope you enjoy it. I am an anti-racism ally who's committed to helping bridge the gap between blacks and whites in America. I know it will never happen until both sides learn to effectively communicate. I also realize my views are steeped in white privilege and I may make a mistake with my words, so I hope my black friends who hear anything racist in this podcast will call me out on it so I can correct what I'm saying. Thank you in advance. I want to help. I'm sure I'll make mistakes and missteps along the way. I ask for forgiveness in advance. Don't let fear of doing or saying the wrong thing stop you from speaking out. People will help you to know why you may want to change your language. It won't stop me from speaking out. My position will not be popular with some of the people I know. I'm okay with that. I will lose friends who think I'm stirring a racism pot that no longer exists. To that I say, if there's nothing there, how can I stir it? Racists may actually hate me, and I'm okay with that. I am white and live with the privilege of believing I won't be murdered for my beliefs. I have the power to speak and want to magnify the cries for justice from my black brothers and sisters. Why have I appointed myself a spokesperson for this arduous task? It's because in my 20 years of conducting diversity workshops in a variety of settings literally around the world, I have learned a lot. I learned by listening. I have the privilege of being able to listen to marginalized groups in a setting where they're willing to talk about their experiences. What I've learned is that many of us white folks don't understand. That's partially because we don't want it to be true, and partly because black people overall won't talk with us about racism. It isn't safe, and black people talk about being tired of trying to help us understand something we will never be able to comprehend. Most of us whites think that racism ended when a civil rights protest stopped, or when we elected a black president. Most white people have good friends who are black and feel no racism at all towards black people. You might have even said, I don't understand about racism. I treat everyone the same, or I don't even see color. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I believe many white people are individually anti-racism, and perhaps that's the problem. Because when you don't have it in your heart, confirmation bias has us looking for evidence of no racism, and we can fool ourselves into believing most of it's gone. But even if individual racism miraculously disappears, we still have racism built into our system. What it will take to rid ourselves of that is for white people to listen, to understand what it is, then to call it out when we see it, and do something to level the playing field when we can. But we can't do that until we listen. I'm doing my best to listen and understand their experience in my privileged white skin and let them know they are not alone. I see them and want to lend my voice to theirs. 
I'm not going to lie. I have run into some white people who just can't or won't see that we have two Americas, one for whites and one for blacks. White privilege might have a saying, get over it already. There haven't been slaves in this country in 150 years. Instead of listening and acknowledge what happened and is still happening. Do you think if George Floyd had been white and was murdered by a black police officer on video with several witnesses that it would have taken so long to arrest him? Do you believe he would have been charged with just third-degree murder? Do you think his accomplices would still be free ten days later? Ten days after the murder, Derek Chauvin's charges were upgraded to second-degree murder, and the other officers involved were taken into custody and charged. Finally, I do not condemn the looting and violence one bit, but I can definitely understand the frustration and anger. White people are divided on the topic of racism. Some refuse to believe it exists anymore, and talking about it only perpetuates the division between us. Of course, there are still blatant racists who believe in white superiority, and even more dangerous are the undercover white supremacists. Yep, they believe whites are superior and know it's not politically correct to say so, so they're insidious, creeping into the fabric of society. There are some of us who insist they're colorblind and treat everyone the same. But people of color don't want you to ignore their color. The color of their skin has a history. It means something. Recognize it means paying honor and tribute to their experiences. There are those who are waking up to injustice, those who believe racism was mostly random events perpetuated by bad people. They have black friends, work side by side with people of color, and raise their kids to be fair and just. And there are strong allies who are joining the call of their black brothers and sisters to put an end to racism. And I say, I applaud them. We may be coming late to the table, but we're here now. And this is the one thing I thank our president for. With his divisiveness, he has created the climate that has brought many racists out from darkness so we can see who they are. White people can now see injustice where they couldn't before, and for that, I thank President Trump. If he weren't so vile on this topic, many people would still be hiding themselves under the cloak of colorblindness. Are there problems in the black community? Of course there are, just like there are problems in white communities. The problems are just different. But many of the things you could point to in the black community are symptoms of an unjust system, not characterological flaws. A lot is due to socioeconomic conditions. I don't offer this as excuses for criminal behavior, but perhaps some compassion and understanding of why some of these problems exist is in order. Limited resources, inferior schooling, fewer job opportunities, living with fear and mistrust, having disproportionality in all aspects of the criminal justice system, and few avenues for recourse all take their toll. These things are basic human rights for those of us with white skin. Sure, people can be white and live in economically impoverished situations, but they don't have to cope with systematic racism as well. So please don't point to symptoms of racism as reasons black people only get what they deserve. As a choice theory advocate, the problem as I see it is we are attacking this problem from the outside rather than the inside. 
Choice theory is a psychology that teaches people don't change because they are forced to change from the outside. Sure, make consequences bad enough and most people comply with external threats, if they're painful enough, but it does nothing to change the motivation and attitudes inside. As long as people still have the desire to do things their way, as soon as they're out of sight and earshot of the threatener, they'll revert to their previously desired behavior because their beliefs and attitudes haven't changed. External control doesn't work in the long run. Yes, you can gain compliance in the moment, but it further disenfranchises the oppressed. This is why legislation can be passed against racism and hate crimes, and we still have closet racists, and lately, many of those have come out of their closets in all their glory. What will we do with them? Recently, I know what we've done with them. In the case of Armand Arbery, we've allowed his murderers to run free for two months until video footage emerged that made it impossible not to charge them and hold up to public scrutiny. In the case of George Floyd, we arrested a man who can clearly be seen murdering a man and only charged him with third-degree murder initially, and only after serious public pressure upgraded that to murder too. And we allowed his accomplices to go free without charges for 10 days. Even the laws we have on the books are applied differently to white and black offenders. Have the laws changed some things? Sure. There are no more colored bathrooms and drinking fountains. Black people don't have to ride at the back of the bus and give their seats up to white folks anymore. And employers are no longer allowed, by law, to discriminate against people of color when hiring. But how can a law really enforce that? If I'm an employer and I don't want to hire a black person, no one can make me do that. I'll be able to fabricate any number of reasons as to why the white person was the better candidate. And if only black people apply for the job, then I can decide to wait to fill the position until enough time has elapsed and I can post the job again. External reasons are not strong enough to make people do what they don't want to do when no one is looking. In this challenging time of racial unrest, the only thing I know that can lead to internal change is effective communication. We white folks must stop defending ourselves and listen to try to understand a perspective we have never lived. We must be willing to put ourselves, as best we can, in another person's reality and imagine how different that life is. There are things we can do to increase the likelihood this will be our experience. If we have a personal relationship with a person of color, it's fine to ask them questions, but then listen to the answers. Don't try to justify or defend. Just listen, working to understand their position and know that they can only speak to their life experiences. Don't ask them to speak for all people of color. They can't do that any more than you or I could tell them what life is like for a white person. We can only speak to what life is like for us. And if they're exhausted from explaining, please allow them a pass. I have been advocating for understanding for about 14 days now, and I'm experiencing a fraction of the exhaustion people of color experience trying to explain their position to people who want to defend themselves and argue they are colorblind. They're one of the good guys. I can only imagine their exhaustion of living that for a lifetime. I'm exhausted after just two short weeks. If you don't know a person of color well enough to have this conversation, 
know that it's not an acquaintance's or stranger's job to enlighten you to the plight of black and brown people in this country. There are many movies, books, websites, and events that can help you understand. When you're open to receiving the information, a simple Google search will help you find the New York Times and anti-racist reading list and a curated free list on Amazon Prime under the Black History Hardship and Hope section. I already know I'm an expert in my life and my experiences. I have this down. At 59, I'm fairly clear how my life works. What I'm not an expert in is what life is like for my black friends and others who look like them. Yes, we walk side by side, work in the same places, eat at the same restaurants, and belong to some of the same organizations, and yet our experiences are vastly different. I cannot judge their experiences because I'm ignorant to them. First, I have to listen with an ear toward understanding, not just listening so I can enlighten them with my experiences and my understanding about why their experiences aren't valid. When you listen for understanding, you let go temporarily of what you believe to be true and allow for the possibility that the speaker may just have a valid alternative perspective based on their experiences. When you realize that listening to someone else's point of view takes nothing away from yours, you can hear it with more compassion and less defensiveness. Recognizing the institutional racism in our country, as well as others, does not make you racist. In fact, it can help you become anti-racism. We must be able to see the problem before we can do anything about it. And please don't blame the victim by pointing to rioters and looters, thinking that they're the problem. That detracts from the real issues. I don't think anyone focused on the real issues is advocating looting and rioting. Those behaviors are symptomatic of some people who are antagonizing protesters, opportunistic individuals who are looking for a way to steal, and a group of disenfranchised individuals who are just so frustrated they can't think of a better way to get attention for their cause. I don't like the rioting and looting any more than you do, but I can understand it. I can at least imagine the frustration of being treated as less than, of having to be worried your children could be killed for simply being black or brown. I can never really understand. I haven't experienced it. But when I try to stand in their shoes, looking through their eyes, in their skin, I can imagine the frustration. But I can only imagine because I was raised in a just world. I was taught the police are my friends. If I thought I was treated unfairly, I had an avenue to raise my concerns and find justice. I lived a life of privilege. I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. And yet, by virtue of a racist system, I now realize I have it. I can hide my head in shame for not recognizing this earlier and stay silent. I can try to pretend everything is just fine in our country. Or I can get busy using my privilege to speak out about discrimination and oppression whenever I see it, until at some point that privilege no longer exists. That is a world I want to live in and a world I'd like to play a part in creating for my grandchildren. For many black and brown people, the 60s may have created laws for civil rights, but what it also did was move racist undercover. It was no longer politically correct to spout racist rhetoric and engage in discrimination, so they went into stealth mode, 
making it much harder to know who people of color could trust. If we're going to have effective communication geared towards solving the racial problems we have in this country and others, it's going to require nine things. There may be more, but this is all I can think about at this point. Number one, there needs to be a clear sense that racism is wrong and won't be tolerated. There must be consequences for those who operationalize racism in their behavior, with the penalties being commensurate with the offenses. Number two, it will require all the white people in society who are anti-racism to listen and to educate themselves about the challenges woven into the fabric of our nation to be able to pull them out one thread at a time while weaving into their place something bigger. Number three, black people will need to lead the charge for change because it is their experience while allowing their white allies to magnify their voices. Number four, Humans of every shape, size, age, gender, and skin tone will need to deliberately come together for conversations, facilitated by a skilled individual in conflict resolution and differences. People from disenfranchised, oppressed groups need to be both heard and understood by those in power. Number five, white people do not need to give up their power but they need to extend the opportunities for power to everyone and can no longer set up blockades to the access of fairness and justice for all. In fact, they need to disassemble those blockades. Number six, these conversations need to operate with some guidelines. One person talks at a time and has the floor until they feel understood. Number seven, an environment of safety needs to be set so people can be raw, transparent, and honest. Number eight, white people don't get to defend or excuse themselves. They only listen and can apologize or say what they'll do to improve the situation. Number nine, people of color need to gradually begin to trust that the people in these groups really do want to help and are doing their best but will need an adjustment period to get used to the new skills and behaviors they acquire. It takes time to change a habit. Effective communication involves three main things, speaking, listening, and observing. Most of us are better at one or two, but effective communication involves two people who are good at all three. When we engage in communication, we're already expert about one half of the equation, our part. We know what we mean and what we're attempting to communicate. I say attempting because with all the miscommunication that's possible, it's the exception rather than the rule that two people have a straight-ahead conversation with both people understanding precisely what the other person means. Let's start by talking about the speaker role. Before you speak, get clear on your purpose. Are you speaking to change another person's beliefs, or are you speaking to share your opinions and reality while also understanding the opinions of the person you're speaking with? If you're using your voice to push your agenda or criticize others for their opinions, you will never have effective communication. Effective communication doesn't mean that you'll always meet in the middle and agree, or that one of you will have an epiphany and change your mind. Effective communication can still occur if both of you agree that each other has a view based on where you come from, the information you've been given, and the values you have. 
A positive outcome can still be reached when two people develop an understanding of each other's opinions and recognize each are valid. And there can be more than one legitimate way to see the issue, and that's okay, as long as all experiences are honored. One of the challenges of speaking is speaking plainly and clearly so your words aren't misinterpreted. This is an area that can be challenging for me. I'm so clear about what's in my head, but that doesn't always come directly out of my mouth. I sometimes expect people just to understand the nuances of my messages based on knowing my character and not necessarily the words I speak. This doesn't usually result in effective communication. Being clear about what you're communicating is important. Another challenge in speaking is believing the other person knows you so well and should be able to guess what you mean. You know what you want, but you don't say so directly. Instead, you hint around, hoping the other person will read your mind and comply with your unspoken request. As you might imagine, this tactic usually leaves the speaker frustrated and the listener confused. When you're the speaker, take a moment to get clear about what you want to say before you say it. Then choose your words in a way that maximizes the chances your listener will understand you. When you're angry, accusatory, self-righteous, and rigid, you'll likely produce the opposite effect than the one you want. People are interesting. Try to change their mind and convince them your way is correct, and they'll likely dig in deeper to their way of thinking and stop listening to you. I find the best way to communicate is with the mindset that you aren't trying to change the other person's mind. Your goal is simply to provide them with information they didn't have previously, so that information can be factored into their decisions in the future. Presenting information as just information for consideration is often heard much better than voices raised in anger accusing others of things they will only get defensive about. If your goal is understanding, the information must be presented in a way that will maximize this outcome. I call it using my please pass the butter tone. In my own head, when I speak, I remind myself that I can't change people. I can only provide information that they may hear that leads them to want to change themselves. Listening. Listening is a much harder job than speaking. Listening involves more than just hearing the other person speak, just waiting for them to stop talking so you can jump in with your wisdom. True listening involves listening to understand what the speaker is attempting to communicate. You may need to ask some questions to clarify, reflect back what you're hearing to get confirmation from the speaker that you really do understand. If you miss the mark, then the speaker continues to speak until you're able to understand to the speaker's satisfaction. Again, this doesn't mean you must agree with the speaker's perspective. I can understand what you're saying and still disagree, but the idea is to work towards understanding. Consider the speaker's perspective and then decide what that new information does to your perspective. Did you move closer to the speaker's view, remain the same, or move further away? Did you develop a new understanding of a situation? Best case scenario, you reach an agreement you are both happy with. This does not require agreement with each other's perspective. You can understand each other's perspective and craft a solution that accommodates both of your concerns. Then again, you may come to an agreement on perspective. That can happen too. Effective communication is difficult if the listener refuses to accept the validity of the speaker's perspective. 
This is not true or false, black or white. It's a perspective. If I look at a person's face from the side, I'm going to see something different than a person who looks from a full frontal view. Perspectives can change opinions and experiences. Perspectives are influenced by genetics, the accuracy of your five senses, what you choose to focus on, personal experiences, and your values. It's more likely we'll have different perspectives than similar ones based on all the variables involved. Observing. Nonverbal communication makes up a large part of the communication process. You need to be a good observer of body language and listen to the tone of the message as well. This becomes more difficult when the speaker and listener come from different cultures. Nonverbal communication means different things in different cultures. Touching is quite appropriate in a Latin American culture. Loud talking and talking over one another is common in Italian culture, and personal space is a much shorter distance in several Asian cultures. Hand gestures can mean different things in different cultures. One thing you can do if you notice some nonverbal language that struck you a particular way is to check out your perception. Ask, did you mean to discount what I'm saying right now by looking away when I speak, or does that mean something else, or nothing at all? When things are said or nonverbals are observed that mean something to you, the listener, the normal response is to make a mental note of it, and if your discomfort was great enough, you probably told yourself a story in your head based completely on assumptions you made based on where you come from and the culture that's familiar to you. This was never clearer to me than in two different situations in black culture for me. I went with a friend to a black church. I was raised in a Methodist church in rural Pennsylvania. At my church, we were taught to be respectful by being quiet and reverent. We couldn't speak in church, particularly when the pastor was delivering the sermon. When it was time to sing, we opened the hymnal and sang the words and notes written on the page, standing still in our pews. When it was time to pray, we bowed our heads and said nothing but an amen at the end. At the black church, the story I told myself was how disrespectful the congregants were. They shouted out things as the pastor was preaching, danced in the aisles during the hymns, and often shouted out words to God during the prayers. I was shocked initially until I was able to talk to my host about my impressions and we had a good laugh about it. Oh yeah, in my church, I'd never seen anyone touched by the Holy Spirit the same way I saw in the black church. Man, I'm telling you, it was a little bit scary. This just speaks to how different cultures influence behaviors and can lead to terrible assumptions about what's happening in the minds of people who don't understand. When you find yourself in communication with someone from another culture, ask questions to understand before jumping to inaccurate conclusions. Another incident was when I was at a black friend's house who was having a house party. I was the only white person there, but that was fine with me. Before too long, the cards came out. The game was bidwist. That's not a game I knew, but I'm a card player. I know spades, pinochle, hazy, and of course, old maid and go fish. My parents were pinochle players too. And when I was a kid, I remember card nights at my house. I was supposed to be in bed, but always the kid worried about missing out on things. I'd sneak downstairs to listen in. You know what I heard? Not much. They would ask for another drink, ask which suit was Trump, but there wasn't a lot of talking going on. 
In fact, talking was discouraged because it might be a code worked out between partners that gave them an advantage in the game. Guess what I heard in Bidwis? A whole lot of trash talking and posturing, so much so, as I observed from the couch, I was concerned two men were going to come to blows. Of course, that didn't happen, and I later learned that trash talking was part of the game, but without understanding that, I had a fearful story already made up in my head. So when you're observing, if you find yourself feeling some type of way about another's behavior or micro-movements, just ask. Have that be one of the guidelines. It can really cut down on a lot of misunderstandings. Part of my path to mental freedom is 100% responsibilities for all the things you do, including those you decide not to do. You're not responsible for what others do. I'm personally working to take 100% responsibility for my actions. I'm using my platform to speak about what I believe is right. My hope is that I can help some people understand this racial divide and what we can do to contribute to fairness and healing for all. When the oppressed try to stand up for themselves, they need to worry about retaliation, social exclusion, job loss, mental and physical repercussions, up to and including death. It takes those with privilege to care enough to stand with them, not in front of, not behind, but side by side. My goal in taking on this podcast is not to fight the fight for my black brothers and sisters, but to add my voice to the many who are screaming for equality and justice. I don't pretend that I'm some kind of expert. I respectfully stand with you. I'm not trying to take over. My hope is that I can help some of the white people who listen in with the concept of white privilege while letting my black followers know I am listening. If I got anything wrong in this podcast, I'll print a correction. Please help me do better, get better, and be a better ally for you. Your lives matter. I want justice for Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and for all those who came before. I hope and pray there won't be more to follow, but I'm not naive enough to believe this will be the end for all those who come after. We must listen, stop the discrimination and oppression, And then we can work towards healing for one race, the human race. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week when I do an interview with one of my friends, Maureen Sampson, from Australia. We'll be talking about whether my happiness should be dependent on yours. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, choices equal life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.